Welcome to the Aesthete, hosted by me, Mitch Owens, Decorative Arts Editor of Architectural Digest. On today's episode, I'm joined by Roman Alonzo and Stephen Yoenicht, the founders of Commune, the AD100 design firm with the name that says it all. Many talents across multiple disciplines engaged in artful, soulful collaboration. Join us as they reflect on their formative days at Barney's and the future of design as exemplified at Commune. I hope you enjoy the show. Your new book, Design Commune, I picked up and I felt like I knew everything about the book from the praiseworthy blurb on the back by the jewelry designer, Lisa Eisner. And I wanted to really address that because, A, it was a big surprise to see a jewelry designer quoted on the back of uh, ostensibly an interior design book. But even more surprising and really lovely was her last line about your firm, about you two. Like a butterfly to a flower, they are pollinators of beauty. Can you talk a bit about that? I'll, say, I'll just pull in Roman for this. Your design firm is not what one would think of as a typical design firm in the sense of the communal aspect of multiple talents from multiple genres. No, it's not. I think it comes from a very a, a personal desire to work with people you whose work you love and admire. And it's, uh, it's a, a, a bug that bit both of us, I think, back, you know, when we worked at Barney's initially because we were able to work with all these different types of people and different types of projects. And most of them were artists and artisans. And that was something I loved to do so much that in a way I didn't know, but now I know that that's what I want to do with my life. And the firm is almost like an excuse to be able to do that. <laughs> so it, it really drives the design because we always like to bring as many artisans and craftsmen, craftsmen into the project because the joy of doing the project is the joy of working with these people. And someone like Lisa, well, she's been pivotal in my development um, as a person um, and I guess as a designer now because she was the person that sort of told me like uh, you can just express yourself in any way you want and you know if, if the work is good people will will follow and she's fearless you know when I first met her she was a stylist and then she became an accomplished photographer and then she and I both started a publishing firm and, and started doing uh, publishing books uh, it's been a journey with her and we actually even represented her as a photographer at one point because I mean that is commune is definitely a place where we like to harness talent and um, at one point we had a group of photographers and I uh, had a friend Sophie that wanted to start an agency and we just did it in-house and so Lisa came with us and became one of the people we represented and then she became a jewelry designer mm -hmm. And that translated very well to making things for us. So it is about, about working with friends and working with people we admire. That's really what it's been all about, about all along. Stephen, can you take us back to the 
the Barney days, the roots of this partnership? Ramon and I met at Barney's uh, back uh, in the late 80s. And our experience working there really influenced the, a lot of how we work now. And um, it was collaborative. We were able to work with such a variety of people. And it was uh, Peter Marino's first retail store. Mm -hmm. We worked with Andre Putman. The family really fostered creativity. They valued our opinions. Was that sort of relationship where everyone's opinion on a creative team was valued? Because often, you know, when you look back at the history of interior design, there's the head mm -hmm. person, and then there's all of the people who make it happen never get talked about. You never know about them. You, you hardly ever hear their names. It's always the one person who gets the credit. And I'm wondering, based on where you had come from before Barney's, was, was that a surprise? Uh, for me, it was. I mean, at, the, the, you know, at Barney's at the time, Gene Pressman, who was our boss, uh, had assembled a really interesting group of creative people. And when you look back and see who those people were and what they even had accomplished by then, you know, it was people like Glenn O'Brien and Ronnie Cook, who had started Details, and, you know, Mallory Andrews, uh, who, you know, had incredible brilliance as a PR person and an event producer. He let us do what we needed to do. He was a really good leader in that he would say, okay, this is what, what you have, you know, to, to, uh, to produce uh, and, and, and deliver, but he let us do the work together. And everyone's voice um, was listened to and counted for. At the very beginning, when I started working there as a coordinator, my first week at Barney's, I was sitting in a, in a meeting with Jenny Holzer. She was designing hosiery for, for Barney's for a special project. And uh, I literally it was my first week. And I was, you know, working with her on this. So we were sort of given a lot of rope. Mm. Mallory in particular, she would give us all this rope. And then when we were just about to hang ourselves, <laughs> <laughs> she would pull it back and she would have our back. And that's been really, really important to us in terms of creating an atmosphere in our studio of mentorship, because that is really important to let people make their own mistakes. I learned that very early on, and that's something that they allowed us to do there. And at a time when it was, we were watched very closely and we were kind of the talk of the town. Some people who don't, yeah. know, don't realize the influence that the store had at the time. With all that microscope on us, they still allowed us to do what we needed to do, young people. I think it's really, I think it's really interesting that you said that you were allowed to make your own mistakes because there are so many fields where mistakes, whether big or small, are just not tolerated. Mm -hmm. But how are you going to know what works or what doesn't work unless you get to the point of hanging yourself? Yeah. Well, that was the thing. They, they guided us but uh, allowed us to contribute. And I think it, it fostered this atmosphere where we were able to contribute. And a lot of ideas came from us at a young age and were executed. 
But like Ramon has said, they allowed you to sort of uh, go far enough, but you were guided and, and it was a very collaborative experience. They exposed you to all these things that in the end provided you with an education. Those influences benefited them. Um, it, it just made a lot of sense to expose us to all these things because we were becoming creatives in their own company who were producing things that really stood to a certain level of quality and creativity that they not only appreciated but enjoyed. So it, it was a great environment for that and also a great collaborative environment. I mean, that word gets thrown around like crazy now. Right. Everything is a collaboration. But what does that really mean? You know, and at the time, we really had this space where we felt comfortable to truly contribute. And that's the essence of collaboration, is really giving everyone a space to be part of something. It's a huge part of, of the process for everything we do now, is a, allowing that space, not only for the, the artist or the maker, but for the designer and the client. So, you know, everybody has a voice and it, it just recognizing that the, the product is so much better in the end when all that is allowed to happen. And it's not about ego. It's like, mm. it, it is about checking the ego at the door. Um, I have a rule, like check the ego and the lawyer at the door. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise you will not get a good product. Well, also, like you're saying, those days were about the team. And I think that, that that experience, Barney's at the time was trying to evolve luxury retailing in a new direction. And up until that point, the luxury stores had been kind of dusty mm. and kind of the carriage trade. And especially Gene Pressman, he had a different vision for it. And so he put together this group of people to sort of drive it. And, and I don't think he knew where it would end up, but um, you had all these interesting people working together and passionate about creating something unique. And it wasn't based on something that we had already seen. This was very much carried over into Commune. Yes, because it's about the mix. And that's what that experience working, working there together taught us about that mix. And it might be about the mix of people, or it might be about the mix of styles, you know, or, or um, especially in the interiors, the, the mix of furnishings, you know, to, to put those strong personalities of Peter Marino, Andre Putman, um, Jean-Paul Bourgeois, to put all those people together and make them work on one project mm. was, was uh, pretty ballsy. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and you were in your 20s and you were the person that was, you know, really orchestrating that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it so was an incredible it. experience. And it were, yeah, working with Andre Putman on a mannequin and I was terrified of her, you know, and she's like <laughs> blowing smoke in my face and I'm trying to explain we were working on a mannequin and that it was going to have to wear a jacket and that, you know, that, that we couldn't have the arm bent in a certain way. And, you know, she, she didn't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because um, at the time, you know, I think that that department, the creative services department at Barney's was unusual in that 
you know, publicity and store design and display and advertising worked very closely together on everything. Everything was done in com by committee by this group of people. And that really did influence a lot how Stephen and I work and how we look at things, you know, in a really holistic way. But also because it was this sort of multidisciplinary department, mm -hmm. right? And everybody had their specialty and everybody had their kind of corner, right? But you needed each other for it all to come together, right? And at Commune, the difference may be that it's not only multidisciplinary, but it's also interdisciplinary in that the same people are actually doing all the disciplines. There are no silos, right? So mm -hmm. like our graphic designer is working on interiors projects and vice versa. You know, uh, the interior designers may be working on a project that's graphics related and branding related. And it's the blurring of all those walls and, and, and restrictions. And that's what we've been working on, you know, for 15 years. Is, you know, is, it almost sounds like a design colony in the way that like Yaddo is for writers. Mm -hmm. I, it, it seems like Commune is, is very well, that much great. that feeling yeah. Yeah. Of, of everybody, we're all on the same level, we're all in the same place, we're all gonna work together because you use the word designing by committee, which, which to many people sounds like an utter disaster. And it can be. <laughs> <laughs> it can be really a, a huge disaster. I have this thing on my wall that Tibor Kalman uh, wrote about how disastrous uh, design by committee can be. And he's a hero, of course, always has been. But, but internally, we find that that's not the case for us. And everyone at the firm really buys into this, that uh, we are stronger as a team than we are um, individually. And the, um, the process that way, and even if, if one of the architects who, who's drawing particular details, we, we want them to think about how the furnishings or how something, uh, a graphic or decorative component will come in there. Mm -hmm. So I think that they, they all really welcome that experience of working together. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You're talking about you know, someone who's working on a molding, having to also think within a third dimension, a fourth dimension of how it's fitting into the larger picture, as opposed to just solely focusing on this one part. And that's, that's the silo. You're, you're all plugged into that room so that when you step away from it, it's we did this as opposed to I did this. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've always kept those possibilities open within the studio, you know, where um, we have them bring in their passions, whatever they might be. If they're ceramicists, you know, we ask them to bring that talent into the, into the studio or, or whether they like to do metal work or we've had a number of artists that have worked in our office. We welcome people that are well-rounded, that have a lot of different personal interests, that are entrepreneurial in the way that they attack projects and, and, and problems. It's not your usual, uh, perhaps not your usual uh, cast of characters, um, <laughs> but we are not the usual cast of characters, Stephen and myself, because our backgrounds are really not linear. We've done a lot of other different things and, and we wanna continue to do a lot of different things. So again, the studio is really a, like a place where we allow for all of these different things that everybody wants to do Mm. to happen and we keep it really fluid 
Um, and it, it might also even just be in a staff meeting that there's the ability for someone to present something that they've discovered or an artist or, or a project or, or something and that they share that and then you know, bring it to everyone else's attention. That's what I, I liked so much about Lisa Eisner's blurb on the, on the book where you know, she says, I'm a jewelry designer. And they brought me in saying, could you do something in an interior? sense. I think that's a real, that's what design is supposed to be about, is, is not being in your slot, but being able to take, like you just said, someone on staff who's interested in ceramics, well, it's, it's like suddenly a light goes off. What could you do on another project? What, how could you incorporate that interest that you're not really, that's, that's not on your job description, but we want it to be part of what you do. And when we interview people, I dig for these things, you know, you see the clues in their conversation or mm -hmm. even in their resume sometimes. And you're like, well, tell me about this. And, you know, they may be like, why do you want to know about that? And it's like, well, that's what I'm interested in, in terms of your background, because it, it is perhaps the most important thing for us is that flexibility uh, to, to let, you know, uh, creativity sort of flow. Um, and, you know, I mean, Lisa, uh, uh, she's taught me so many things, but uh, the, the, the primary one is just to never be pigeonholed. You know, this multi-hyphenate thing. Yeah, sure. But in the end, I just view her as an artist, right? Everything that someone like, like um, Lisa does is in the end an expression, uh, uh, an artistic expression. And so when we work with different um, craftsmen or artisans, mm. um, it, we always try to push them and pull them out of their comfort zone. You know, we work with this amazing um, textile artist. His name is Adam Pogue. And I, I, I learned of him because he was doing patches for a friend of mine, Nina um, Garduno, for a, a company called Free City. And he was doing patchwork on, on clothing. And at one point he decided to leave there and started making these bags and quilts and stuff. And I, I, we just saw more, we just saw more than that. And we started pushing him. And now he, uh, he's someone we represent, but he does incredible curtains and furniture and textile for furniture. And we just keep pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. Um, the scale of what he does, the style of what he does mm. um, and that there's an incredible amount of pleasure that comes from being able to do that with someone and, and help them develop their um, craft. Yeah. People and his work has come out in a number of projects in very different ways, whether it's a little cabin or whether it's a commercial restaurant, his eye has been opened up and yeah, to push him and use different fabrics and, and to integrate his work into different kinds of interiors has been really great. When you look at the new book, Design Commune A, which is not laid out like your typical design book anyway. I mean, you have everything, sketches, photographs, the quality of the paper being sort of matte. Um, it, it's, it's a very, if I, it's a silly sounding word, but it's a very huggable book. And I feel like your, <laughs> like your interiors in a lot of ways are, they, they don't seem designed in a typical sense. They seem to have fallen into place. There's a sort of 
artiness to them. There's a sort of intellectualism to them. There's a, a bit of bohemian to them. It, it's almost, I, I want to know the people who live in the spaces as much as I want to know the people who put it together. Because it just seems very cozy, no matter how big the space is. I love that you said that, that you want to know the people that live there, because that is like the number one goal is to bring about um, a space that reflects the person that lives there. And, you know, some people have a hard time with that, like, because you have to um, sort of uh, expose a lot about yourself to the team working with you. Um, and we dig, we try to find the essence of a person and their personality and that's what's reflected in, in their homes um, or even in commercial projects, like whoever, you know, who, who, who's ever vision this is. Mm. It's important that that, that vision is, is in, in the work and not so much ours. We, we tend to call ourselves facilitators because we're really just helping them figure out who they are and how they want to live and then making that happen. And, and the client is very much part of the team. We, we work best with clients that are involved and that um, want to actually be part of the process. Um, so ultimately, it is about them and it's about the right space for them and about helping them make the right decisions as we see it. Because it's about helping them make the, the right decisions for to own things that last for a long time, that don't date, that are not trend oriented, that have uh, a certain value because of the mm -hmm. way that they were produced and made. Things that are good for them, you know, not only spiritually but you know even physically. So it, it is in a, in a way uh, a very personal process that that should be. Uh, the outcome should be, it, it, uh, should reflect personality. It, it, that's, that's what we want yeah. in the end. And I, ideally, exactly, these should be very personal, but I, ideally also that we would help them acquire furnishings that they have over a long period of time and, mm -hmm. and are part of their family. And that um, there isn't this sort of just tossing out and doing a new redesign in three years. They may freshen something up, but the goal would be to, to develop a home and something that is much, much more personal. Um, so that research for whether it's the uh, architecture of their space or you know who they are, how they live, that also makes it more fun for our staff and, and everyone working on the project is the deep dive into to what's special about that project. Now, why is Commune based in California after your long time working in New York? Is there a correlation between Commune as a firm and Commune as a, a style? I mean, honestly, uh, it could have never happened anywhere else. I don't yeah. think so. I really don't. Maybe today it could happen somewhere else, but you know, 20 years ago when I moved to Los Angeles, this is a very different town, but it always did have this, um, you've had this feeling of, of, of freedom that you don't experience in New York, be, be, you're, where you might feel like you're maybe looked at a little closer with a microscope, where you might have a, a few more rules in terms of what constitutes a professional endeavor. Um, here, you're sort of free to reinvent and, and invent 
um, things. And um, when we all came together to create Commune, um, we never gave it a second thought as to how we would do something or create a company where we could you know, work on uh, all the different kinds of projects we wanted to work on and be multidisciplinary. I mean, 16 years ago, nobody was using that word. And when we first started the company, people here never batted an eyelash about what we were doing. They accepted it immediately. But when we told our friends in New York or our, our you know, other people in New York, even in the design mm-hmm. community, they questioned it. And they would say things like, well, what is it that you do? They couldn't understand how you could really do all these things and do them well how you really needed to be primarily one thing, an interior designer or a graphic designer. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, I'm none of those things. You know, um, I remember someone asking me like, so what is it that you do? And I was like, well, we design shit. Like, I mean, <laughs> how is that so hard to understand? And so in California, it, it was never questioned. There's a certain sense of freedom here. When I first moved here, somebody said to me, you know, in New York, you're always looking up, right? Looking up at, you know, the, there's there are walls you know there's right. buildings there's you know always looking up and you're always cl- almost climbing up right whereas in LA uh, in California in general you have you can see the horizon line and that really opens things up and there's a certain certain freedom that comes with that with that feeling that you can accomplish anything you know what you um, you, you sound like somebody who in the 1920s would have been starting a film studio and just say, we can do anything here. We can make anything here. And I I think that that's, there's a part of that within that, not necessarily just Los Angeles, but that California DNA of, of reinvention of being able to do absolutely anything to strike the set and start something else because you have all the talent, you have all the people, you have all the craftsmen and it, 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 the world is is your oyster. I know that one of the things that we talked about in our preview of our talk today was how much, oddly enough, California has influenced all of American design, whether you think about it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just the West Coast. Yeah. You know, the West Coast is with you in Connecticut, in Florida, in Iowa. Yeah. And it's just now getting the credit by the way, when I moved here 20 years ago, people said to me, don't do it. You will have a creative death. Seriously. <laughs> and I, you know, I was like, whatever, you know, I'm going to check it out anyway. And, um, and although this was back then a much of an, in, very much an industry town and, and the conversation really geared towards that. And you know, if you were at a dinner party, if you weren't in the business, nobody would talk to you and all that. And that's, has changed. This place has always historically attracted incredible talent right and and talent that had you know kind of the courage to pick up and 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 go to a new world right so we there's always been an enormous amount of great craftsmanship and and great creativity and all that and 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 a lot of things have have been given the room here to evolve i mean just one little thing like modernism, for example, that's just a little thing, right? That got, mm-hmm. right. Uh, you know, that, that wouldn't have really happened. Uh, I don't think in America, unless it happened here because um, it, it, so many elements allowed it to flourish. Right. And the people came here 
because they, they could, they felt like they could, oh, this is the place where I can try this out. And so we see now how that has you know, spilled over to almost everything else. Um, it's funny you say that about modernism because when you look at modernism as it was happening, say in Germany in the 30s, and then you have the prime players of that movement escaping Europe, coming to California, and California's imprint on modernism, making it warm, making it warm, making it indoor, outdoor, bringing in plants and trees, and you know, just the climate alone, yeah. teaching modernism new tricks, right? Yeah, he made it a lifestyle, which I don't think, you know, I don't know that that's the case um, when you look at modernism in, um, in a place like New York, mm. you know? Um, there's a different kind of focus. But here you could live it, right? You could easily live it. And live it without dogma. Correct. It just made sense. Well, the relationship of the landscape where they're saying the, whether you're living indoor, outdoor, but also visually and how you, you bring in that, the light, the color, the, the, uh, the textures, um, there's, there's definitely something that happens when you're living here that's different to the way modernism or the way you construct an interior uh, when you're working in New York. Mm -hmm. You know, Matt uh, Turnauer, who wrote the introduction to our book, he's an old friend and we're so grateful that he wrote that introduction. I never quite expected it to be what it is, honestly. It, it sort of arrived and I was like, wow, well, this is really long. And, <laughs> and, but you know what? We're not cutting a word of it because it's really great. And um, he kind of talks about this, you know, how it wasn't celebrated here for a really long time and it was dismissed, you know, and put away and, you know, kind of trashed, you know, this, this incredible thing that, that really California is, is maybe responsible for. And at the same time, it was seeping into other places mm. and it was influencing other places. And here it was sort of forgotten. And luckily, you know, we all began to appreciate it again, but time, I guess, needed to lapse for that to happen in a town where fantasies were perhaps um, more important because of the business that kind of ruled, right? So you had to create these fantasies rather than um, live in a way that mm. made absolute sense. You needed to froth it up and make it into some kind of other thing. Um, right. So I'm glad we're back to appreciating it and living it because it, it, it is what makes sense here. I mean, even, even if the interiors have a traditional bent, like the Betsy Bloomingdale house, I mean, it still feels like a California house, even though there's 18th century French furniture around. It still feels weirdly relaxed. Yeah, that's one of the, you know, I, I've been able to experience a few things that have absolutely changed my eye and have changed my mind about things. And her house was one of those. In another life, Lisa Eisner and I wrote articles for the New York Times Magazine on culture. And we interviewed her for an article about um, a series on, on hostesses. And she had us over at her house for tea. And that, that elegance, talk about a, a, an elegant environment, couldn't have been more elegant actually, but it was so laid back and so comfortable and so welcoming. And there was no pretense, right? That's very unique, I think, to California and the way that people entertain and live here. 
that's not from for everywhere or from everywhere. Mm. It, it, I think it's it's something that really comes from here. I think. Stephen, are there interiors that you've experienced that have had as much of an impact on you as the Bloomingdale has has for Roman? Well, I think going to Tony Ducat's uh, house here again when I was working on opening the Barneys out here. We went and we had tea with Tony Duquette and it was just magical and insane. And the, the, uh, at Donward Ridge and the relationship of indoor and outdoor and high and low. And um, it was very, it was eye-opening. He's such a good one that. for, you know, this thing that we're talking about, because when you would go to his environments and you go to Dawn Ridge, you would look at something and you'd be like, oh my God, that's the most beautiful, magical thing. And then you look at it closely and it was basically it was a rake that had <laughs> been painted in gold <laughs> and, and, you know, propped up with something. And you're just like, oh my the God. The ceiling covered rake. in plastic trays. Yes. So it looks like a coffered ceiling. And it's like, wait, wait, those are lunchroom trays, you know, treated to look like gold, but they're, they're yeah. plastic lunchroom trays. The magic, you know? The magic of, of having no um, restraints, basically, and being able to just make make magic out of a garbage bag or whatever, you know. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's really that is true creativity in the but, end. But but also then at, at the other extreme, going to the Schindler House on on King's Road and just you know i had seen that. photos of that but actually going and being in that space and seeing the materials and seeing the scale and then understanding how they they lived there was was so magical and really says a lot again about living in california and that space is incredible roman Stephen, thank you very much for coming today and talking about Commune and your time at Barney's and houses that have influenced you and that whole desire for a communion within a firm. Thank you. Thank this you. This was really fun. The ADSC is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com. 